Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. Today, my guest is Gabby Bernstein. Gabby is a number one New York Times bestselling author. She's written nine books, including The Universe Has Your Back and a new book, Happy Days, The Guided Path from Trauma to Profound Freedom and Inner Peace. She's an international speaker, host of the podcast, Dear Gabby, and she claims her mission to help us crack open to a spiritual relationship of our own understanding so we can be aligned with our true purpose. Gabby is a genuine explorer of spiritual and healing modalities. And through her explorations, she has found a pathway to recovery from addiction, the healing of trauma, and being very upfront and forward with her own devotional spiritual nature. Here she shares with us how she found what it means to be led by the self, that mysterious center of our being that can witness everything that goes on in our life and can be a compassionate center connected with source energy. Here's my conversation with Gabby Bernstein. And with that, let me welcome friend Gabby Bernstein. Gabby? Hello, my friend. How are you? So nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to be with you. And, you know, right here at the beginning, you share in the beginning of your book about how this is your most vulnerable book and how it actually uh, came out uh, from you as a risk. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about the risk you feel you took to write Happy Days and why you felt it was the time to do so. Well, I'm not sure about you when you write a book, but whenever I write a book, the introduction is the last thing that I write. Because does that happen for you? I don't know. That's my, my experience. Because when I <clears throat> when I um, write a book, I kind of go through this journey and then come out the other side and realize, okay, what just happened? <laughs> and so I wrote the introduction of the book at the last minute in response to some of the feedback I received from my publishers. And this is how it went. They said to me, Gabby, we are nervous for you. You're sharing one negative story after the next, and we don't feel like you're showing your true strength. My immediate response was, my ability to be this vulnerable is my true strength. And with that conviction, I was able to stand my ground and say, this material will be printed in this way, and it will be of high service to the world. And often when we write about shame, it activates the shame in other people, and it activates the fear in your publisher or your, or your husband or whoever else might be out there. But to write this book and to vulnerably share my authentic truth, my journey of addiction recovery, trauma recovery, the decades of, of devotional, spiritual, and personal growth to get to where I am today. It took a lot. And, you know, Tammy, I wouldn't have been able to put my face on a cover of a book that said, 
Happy Days, the guided path from trauma to profound freedom and inner peace, if I had not fully lived that. And so as a result of having the bravery and the courage and the vulnerability to live to tell, I have committed to, to putting my face on the book, to standing behind every single word, and that conviction and that courage was necessary in order to put it into print. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a question about sharing vulnerably, because I think sometimes it can get a little confusing, as in there's a way that we're really letting people see us and know us, and that's mm -hmm. so important. But there are other times when I can feel sometimes like people are saying, like, I'm just being vulnerable, but what they're actually doing is kind of... I don't know what other words she's puking out their process in a certain kind of way. And I'm like, whoa, yeah. Yeah. like, is that really helpful right now? Did I need to know all that? What are you actually trying to do? And so what do you think is clean vulnerability, if you oh, will? What, a, what an awesome question that I've never been asked that before. That's such a radical question. Great. Clean vulnerability. I think it's extremely important for us to talk about clean vulnerability right now in this day and age when we all are the media, we all have access to these phones and devices where we can just spew, like you said, what is it, puke out our, vulner our vulnerability. And so we all have that at our fingertips at any given moment where we can just let out. I believe that oftentimes there's there's an additional way that we spew, right? So there's the puking out all of our ideas, like you mentioned, or all the things that we need to tell. And then there's the vulnerability for the sake of being seen. Because there's many of us out there that have this deep longing and, 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 and need to feel seen, to feel recognized. And these days, a lot of people are doing that through their un, sort of a unclean vulnerability. And so I want to define what I believe clean vulnerability is. When we have the ability to share our truth and express our genuine experience without feeling triggered by it, with knowing in our heart that we have come through the other side of our experience and to live to tell that truth, we can trust that it will have an impact on others. Whereas in my book, Happy Days, there's a chapter on shame. And I share about how I was talking, I, I, I agreed to lead a group. Let me back up a bit. In the book, I, I, I talk about how I remembered being sexually abused. When I was 36 years old, I remembered childhood abuse in a dream. And shortly after that, I was asked to speak on a panel at Kripalu, speak at it, lead a workshop with two other women. And it was on the topic of, of women's empowerment and sexual abuse and things that other women had gone through that uh, particularly sexual in nature. And I agreed to do it. And in doing it, it was actually a disaster because I was not grounded. In, I was actually extremely activated still at that time. And it was actually there at that retreat that I started to recognize a lot of my own shame. And so when we, and so this was a really big sign for me that I was not in healthy vulnerability. And thankfully, I had the tools to pull back and, and reorganize and, and, and get regulated and, 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 and really care for myself so that I wasn't activating myself and re-traumatizing myself in front of a lot of other people. So we have to become the witness, and I hope that people listening right now cannot have to learn that the hard way like I did, where you can really recognize, okay, I have to do my own work first, make sure that I feel safe in my system, feel safe in my story, and that when I speak on behalf of the parts of myself who have experienced trauma or the parts of myself who have experienced addiction or any extreme behavior, that I'm speaking for them, not as them. Because that can be really dangerous if we're in that, I'm sort of leaning into IFS here, which we can talk about as well. But if I'm, if I'm in that activation while I'm sharing vulnerably, I'm going to trigger other people. Whereas if I'm in my grounded self and my adult resourced self speaking about an experience in the pursuit of the service of others, that is clean vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Now, Gabby, let's just back up for a moment because you introduced IFS, which is internal family systems. 
a therapeutic method developed by Dick Schwartz, and some of our listeners may not be familiar with it. It's obviously been very, very important to you. When you talk about being aware of your parts, a part that feels shame or a part that feels traumatized, can you tell me what it's like to be sitting in that seat of awareness of a part versus I went through this, this yeah. is me? Yeah, I'd love to sort of demystify IFS for your for your folks that have not necessarily read your books that you've published for him, for Dick, and um, the great work that you share with IFS. So internal family systems therapy, uh, otherwise known as IFS, created by the incredible human Dick Schwartz, who you and I are both friends with, mm -hmm. uh, has, is is a, a very transformational therapy that can, can really heal you from the inside out. And from my perspective, the way that I would demystify this for the average listener, for somebody who may not be aware of this process, it is a process of recognizing that we are not one mono-human, but we have a lot of different parts of who we are. And these parts of us were established at a very young age. And so the two specific parts that we ref recognize, the parts that are in almost like inner personalities. So rather than thinking we're one personality, we, we have a lot of different personalities inside of us. And maybe you found yourself saying things like, oh, there's a part of me that gets really rageful when my husband speaks in that tone. Or there's a part of me that wants to just retreat when I feel activated. We all have these different moments where we can say things like that. And noticing that that actually could potentially, opening your mind today, be an inner part of who you are. And so from an IFS perspective, there's two, two types of parts. There's the exiled parts, which are the little children who experienced trauma, who experienced feelings of being inadequate, unlovable, experienced uh, insecure attachment in any form. And so in those moments in childhood, when we start to recognize those, those experiences of, of trauma in whatever form, big T trauma or small T trauma, you know, being bullied or being, being sexually abused, we've all had these moments of trauma. Those exiled parts immediately go under lock and key, and we say, nope, I never want to feel that again. And so we put these little children under lock and key, and we say, I'm not going to go there, and I'm going to build up all these protection mechanisms, otherwise known as protector parts, to, ever, to, to avoid ever having to face those impermissible feelings of fear, terror, inadequacy, and feelings of being unlovable. And protectors could look like control. Protectors could look like being an overachiever. Like if you felt like you were unlovable, you're a big time. You could be a big time overachiever. Uh, if you had a narcissist parent or a very insecure attachment style, you may have built up a protector part that wants to prove yourself to the world and be very successful out in the world, so you could feel like you're being seen, like you're being good enough, like you have enough. And these protection mechanisms, otherwise known as protector parts start to run the show. And they have a very important role in our inner family system, but they can get very extreme. In my case, my protector parts became so extreme because I had this dissociated memory of trauma that I was working so hard to override that I became a cocaine addict. And now, actually, today, Tammy, is my 17 years of sobriety. Today, October 2nd, is my sober date. So I've been sober 17 years. Congratulations. Today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and it's really nice to celebrate that with you. I, uh, I can really look now and say that the cocaine addict part of me is a part of me that I am grateful for, that I love, because she was doing whatever she could to keep me safe at that time. And so that would be a very extreme part, those addict parts. They're like firefighters. They swoop in to put down the fire, to put out the fire. And so for the, for the viewer right now, consider, or the listener, consider that we have an inner family system. But what's beautiful and what's most hopeful and heart-opening is that we also have this part of us, this ever-present energy within us, known as self with a capital S, and self is the undamaged, resourced, adult part of who we are, the energy of love, often in spiritual lexicon, we might say higher self or God, the spirit within us, the part of us that is totally undamaged and available to take care of these more extreme parts. And so now I can kind of answer your question about what that feels like for me. 
And I hope that in my explanation, it kind of helps people go deeper. So the more I practice IFS throughout my trauma recovery with my therapist and with Dick and getting more trained in the model, the more I could see the moments when my protector parts would get activated. So for example, when I feel out of control, I would get very activated. And so I could start to become the witness of those moments instead of becoming the activated part. And so the more I was able to notice those moments of, okay, my team are um, you know, not doing the work that we need to get done and I'm freaking out and I'm getting activated and my protector wants to control, in those moments, I could then notice that protector and know more about it and start to become curious about that part of me. And in that space of extending curiosity and compassion and bringing calm energy to that part, I started to extend with that self-energy. I started to be allow that self within me to become the internal parent that could guide that fear-based part, that super protector part, to a more calm state. And so I can now, as a result of bringing more self-energy to those protection mechanisms, to those protectors, the protectors can actually do better work in the world. So my controller is still doing a great job, Tammy. She's like, you know, keeping everything under control in the house. She's got the toddler. She's writing the books. She's showing up here with you. She's staying clean and sober. She's doing great work, but she's not in an extreme role anymore. And so as Dick said in his latest book, there's no bad parts. And the more self-energy, the more compassion, courage, there's these C qualities, calmness, connectedness, curiosity, creativity, and that that commitment, that committed nature, the more we bring those C qualities to these protector parts, the more they can relax and they can actually do great work. My controller did some great work in the world, even when she was extreme. You know, she wrote nine books in 11 years. So she got Mm -hmm. busy. She was working hard. But now, Tammy, I can write my next book, my 10th book, with the same deadline and the same commitment and the same conviction, but with a lot more ease because mm-hmm. she, because that controller part is less extreme. Now, you know, it's interesting to me, Gabby, that you had Dick Schwartz write the foreword to your book on trauma, Happy Days. And here, right at the beginning of our conversation, we've entered uh, the demystification of this approach of internal family systems. And, you know, you're such a healing explorer. You've yourself, immersed yourself in so many different modalities. You write about somatic experiencing from Peter Levine as a way to approach trauma. You've worked with uh, EFT and tapping, and yet IFS seems to have given you some kind of particularly valuable lens that you're emphasizing right now in your work. And I'm curious when it comes specifically to healing trauma, how it is that IFS has been so important to you. Thank you so much for that question. So when I'm recognizing that self-energy, when I'm acquiring more and more of that self-energy, the biggest realization I've had through IFS is that the parent that I always needed when I experienced trauma, the parent that I needed when I was needing to come out of that trauma and, and heal, the parent that I needed when I was a cocaine addict, the parent that I needed in the controlling moments, the parent that I need even this to even today when there's things that come up in life is actually inside of me. That self, that ability to self-soothe, to see my parts, to be present with my parts, to listen and be curious about those parts, and to know that I can, in a steadiness, create a calm, safe environment for all the parts of who I am and let that internal parent be the leader of all these different experiences that have happened inside of me, that is the greatest gift I have ever been given. That is the full-blown knowing of what it means to be connected to God. That's the full-blown knowing of what it means to be able to have that higher self, that, that, that voice of love, be the loudest voice in the room. 
And as spiritual students, that's what we're always aiming for, whether we realize that or not. We're, we're working to suspend our ego, fear-based belief systems and in turn rely on the voice of God, rely on the voice of a higher power. And so with IFS, I was able to really fast track that connection because it, was, it wasn't about putting down the ego or, you know, shutting down the ego. It was about befriending those protector parts, connecting to, being curious about, and then really recognizing I have a parent inside of me that's there for me all the time that no matter what happens in my life, I can turn to self. I'm never alone. Now, Gabby, in a moment when someone finds themselves needing that loving parent, that loving, all compassionate embrace, and it's not there, they don't feel it. They feel identified with some, you know, to use the language exile or child part or needy part or desperate part or part in pain. What are your suggestions for how to invoke that inner loving parent to reparent ourselves basically right now in the moment. So the first step I would recommend is to do a heart hold and place your hand on your heart and your other hand on your belly, whichever hand feels best to you, right or left on your heart. Because because if you have the awareness, so Tammy, you know, we've, we can be so activated and so stuck in a protector part that we may not actually have the awareness of it until we've like, you know, wake up hungover or whatever happens, right? But the moment that you have that mustard seed of awareness, right, that like little light entering in where you can say, oh, I'm in a, I'm in a part of me, go right to that hold. And that hold will start to ground you and then bring some breath to it. And in that place of that hold with that breath, become a little curious. Start to turn your focus inward and just notice what you notice about what's happening inside. Notice what you're feeling. Notice any colors or shapes. Notice any words that need to come forward. And what you're doing is you're starting to just notice the part. You're noticing the anxiety or you're noticing the addiction or you're noticing the fear. And you might start noticing other kinds of parts start to show up. Just keep getting curious about what's happening inside. And then you can even ask yourself, what do I know about this part of me? And listen, because profound statements will come forward. And keep breathing and stay connected and keep in that heart hold. And as you deepen that connection and that curiosity, and you strengthen that curiosity and you go a little further, just gently ask the part of you that's so activated, what does it need? What do you need right now? And often what will happen, nine times out of 10, the part will say something like, I need a hug, or I need some, some fun, or I need to play, or I need to relax, I need to take a nap, I need a break. So what's happening in those moments is just like I am with my toddler. When I'm, when I'm co-regulating for my toddler, right, not with him, but for him, he's in a tantrum. He's in an activated part that he can't get himself out of. So as his parent, I can ground him through breath and be present with him and then become curious. What are you feeling? What goes on on the inside? What are you noticing? And then what do we know about that? Okay, let's talk about it. I can even extend empathy. Oh, one time that happened for mommy. I've been there. I know that. And then I can get to the place where I can ask him what he needs. But you can't connect to that part that is needy when they're activated in the tantrum, in the adult tantrum, right? Mm -hmm. so, so the same way I would care for my toddler, I'm caring for my internal children the same, with the same energy, with the same compassion, the same commitment, the same curiosity, the same calmness, the same courage. And so if I can continue to go in that dance of tapping into self and then bringing self to the, to the child part and then seeing that self is needing more self energy and then bringing it back to that child part, I then let self become the leader of my internal family system. When this clicks, listen, Tammy, I'm going to be honest with your, with your viewers. I had Thank been you. practicing, I had been practicing IFS for almost a decade before it actually really clicked in for me. And the irony is I actually didn't even know that I was practicing IFS parts work with my therapist. I was very resistant to it. 
she'd consistently ask me like, what part is there? And I'd be like, I don't freaking know what part is there. And then when I started, it was very interesting. I started reading Dick's work and I didn't even realize that I'd been practicing IFS. And I was listening to Dick and I started reading his work and I was like, oh my God, that's what I've been doing for a decade. So the the, uh, greater understanding for me, like thanks to the books and thanks to the audios, the greater understanding of the work for me actually let it all click in for me. And so I really actually feel like it's very valuable for someone to understand what's, to sort of intellectualize it. For me, it was. For some people, it might not be. But to get this idea that, oh, wait, I've got these people inside of me that I can tend to, it clicked. And I just became, it's like a muscle. I became more and more reliant on self. And the more I relied on self, the easier it was for self to show up for those parts and continue to and be the louder voice in the room. It sounds like there's been also some informational process around your parenting of a toddler and the reparenting of yourself. That's interesting to me. Yeah. There's a whole chapter in Happy Days called Reparenting Yourself, where I really lean on a lot of the work of Dan Siegel. And uh, Dr. Dan Siegel, incredible uh, author and uh, psychiatrist, I believe. Is he a psychiatrist? I think he is, right? Or psychologist? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. And his work is some of the most profound work I've found for parenting. And what Dan references is uh, the four S's, to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. And when I was applying those principles with my child, particularly at the beginning of, of our COVID lockdown, I was seeing such miracles when I would just help see him, help him feel safe, and and soothe him with that safety, and then create this secure environment for him miracles just started to unfold and that became the way that we related to each other and the way I related to him. And it was really clear to me at the time I was writing Happy Days and I thought, wait, hold it. Wait, I never got this. I wish I had this. And then I thought to myself, what if I gave this to myself? And so in deepening my work with IFS and using the four S's, I started to apply them to myself. And I would be like, okay, when I asked, when I'd get curious about what I was feeling, seeing myself, when I was breathing and meditation or even a heart hold or any kind of somatic practice that would get me back into my body, I was soothing myself. And in that soothing and being seen, I started to sense safety because I could trust myself. And that allowed me to create a secure connection to self, to that internal parent. Mm -hmm. You share in the book that you yourself from your early childhood had a type of disorganized attachment, which is the most difficult kind of early relationship with our parenting. It's one of the vulnerable things you share. You share a lot of vulnerable things in the book. Uh, We're we're not going to be able to touch on all of them. But it was very powerful to me that you uh, shared that. Uh, without shame, and that the process you've been through has brought you into a place of security, or at least relative security, uh, with yourself having this very difficult early attachment pattern in your family. Yeah, I had one parent who was an anxious attachment style, and another who was an avoidant attachment style. And then, of course, experienced um, trauma that was <clears throat> that I'm still working through, frankly. I mean, I've, I've come so far and I got to myself to a place where the shame wasn't there, to, not completely abolished, but I was safe in, in the storyline in order to tell it. <laughs> I would never have been able to write it if I hadn't gotten there. But still working through that that historical shame and and all the work that goes into undoing those traumatic events. So yes, I had a, a very insecure attachment style that that really I can see now was running the show for many, many years. While I'm sober 17 years right now, my first drug was love. I was a super codependent love addict. And when I decided to put down the boyfriend, I picked up the cocaine. So the first drug I tried to get off of was that incessant need to be in a relationship. I can now have full compassion and awareness and understanding for all those behaviors. I never felt safe. I never felt cared for. I had complete anxious attachment style. And I think that your listeners may likely have an awareness of what attachment styles are, but anxious is anxious is what, what it sounds like. <laughs> You're the folks that are clinging to relationships and getting into a relationship and maybe showing up with your luggage, like, let's move in, let's get it, let's feel safe, let's get that connected. 
Um, an avoidant attachment style is the one where you, when things get too close, you want to run. You want to run. And this is particularly in romantic relationships or, or even, no, other relationships too, friendships, a lot of things like this. And then there's a secure attachment style where we have the secure parent or family member who created that safe, that safe space for us and practice those four S's, whether, whether they realize it or not. And that, that person's pretty confident in relationships and pretty confident in life. But what I want to share is that it's extraordinary because I can take any attachment style quiz in the world and I can notice, oh, well, that's how I used to be. 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 And then say, oh, I used to be anxious and avoidant and super insecure attachment style. And now I'm secure. And I don't actually have any connection to those old behaviors, except for memories. It's pretty profound that we can actually heal our attachment style when we heal our trauma. If you were able to read, contemplate, and interpret millions of pages of history's greatest wisdom texts, might you be better able to answer some of humanity's most pressing questions? A team employed artificial intelligence to find out. They prompted the world's most advanced AI with humankind's most important spiritual and philosophical works. And then they asked it the big questions. The result is the book, What Makes Us Human. It's an unprecedented exploration of spirituality and of what makes us humans, humans. You can find the new book, What Makes Us Human, at bookstores, online, and at soundstrue.com. Now, Gabby, a couple of times you've mentioned shame and working through shame as part of the process from healing from trauma. Tell me more about your experience of shame and what you've learned in terms of how to successfully work through it when it arises in our experience. I mean, this conversation is bringing up potentially a lot for people about their, yeah. you know, shame about their early upbringing or their addictive patterns or many mm -hmm. things. Shame for me, and I think for all humankind, is the most scary condition, it's the most scary feeling, emotion. When we we all have shame, and we have a lot of different ways of avoiding it, running from it. So we can we can project it out. We can say, okay, well, that's not me. That's on that's somebody else. You know, so and so did that. We can blame and shame others so we don't have to face our own shame. Or we can attack ourselves, right? So I'm one of my mantras throughout the book is, you know, this storyline that I'm a piece of shit. That was my story. That was a story I had on repeat over and over and over again. So that shame really attacking myself. Then there's another form of shame is avoiding it, you know, just sort of dissociating from it. Nope. I don't even know that that's even there. I had that big time. You know, the dissociative part of myself, the dissociated part of myself that did not remember the sexual abuse until I was 36 years old was not in my memory. I had fragmented images and feelings and sensations and physical and, and, and uh, biochemical issues as a result of it. Anxiety disorder, gastrointestinal issues, insomnia, relationship issues, controlling, addiction, all of the above. But I did not remember it completely. But my body remembered, my my gut remembered, my everything in my physical experience remembered. But but in my memory, it was tucked away, and that's because of the shame, the shame response of dissociating, the shame response of saying that is way too big to carry. I cannot go there. And it was only when I started to heal from the trauma and do deeper work that I even realized I had shame. I was 36 years old. I'd probably written nine, maybe I'd written like seven, six, seven books at that point. And I only then could realize my shame. It's a very impermissible experience to, to, to try to tap into. And it's not something that we should do quickly. It's not something that we should rip the Band-Aid off of. Shame is something that we would want to touch into slowly maybe even with the support of a therapist, 
or a community like yours and just just very slowly touch into those feelings because if they're ripped off too quickly, it can be very uncomfortable for your internal system. What do you do now, Gabby, when you feel shame, when shame comes up in your experience? I go to self. I return to that self energy. So uh, shame came up this morning for me. We were... Um, my son's uh, nanny has uh, moved on to a different family with a baby, and we're interviewing for different childcare. And the controller came in this morning when a new when some when a new nanny came in for an interview. I was like, oh well, you know, we found somebody full time, but maybe we can work part time. I was very like, you know, I was very caffeinated and very uh, controlling. And my husband can get frustrated when I'm like that. And when she was there in front of her, he was like kind of like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? We might want to hire her part time, like stop, you know, kind of shaming, you know, feeling shame. Whether he was shaming me or not, I felt shame. I felt like, uh oh, Gabby, you're back there. You went back. And so my former response would be to blame him, to shame him, right? And say something like, well, you never got clear with me about what we want. And you didn't do this. But instead, I was able to say, all right, I hear you. And I recognize that I was trying to control the situation. And well, first I actually went to self and I stepped away and I tuned into that self part. And self was like, yeah, okay, I understand. I've got a lot of compassion for where you're at right now. It's scary to have these big things and big relationships like this change. And then from that place of self, once I get grounded in that compassion towards the part, and I went back to my husband, I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to blame you for that messy interview. I'm not going to blame myself. Let's have an open dialogue about what we both want and what we're looking for so we can be more clear the next time we interview somebody. And so that's exactly what I do. Mm -hmm. It sounds like whether it's reparenting ourselves or whether it's reestablishing ourselves in this self-led place so that we can accept and embrace our shameful experiences, that we need a lot of compassion. Yeah. We need to really bring our compassion online yeah. towards all the parts of ourselves. I wonder if you can speak to that, Gabby. Yeah. So once again, those the qualities of self, when you know that you're connected to self-energy, it's because you're noticing that you're compassionate towards that part of you or that you're willing to be curious about it or that there's a creative idea and that those C qualities, calmness, connectedness. But I find that compassion often, for me, is the first to come through. That's not going to be the case for everybody else. People have a lot of different experiences with their parts and they may have a lot of anger and rage towards their parts. And so it may be hard to connect to that self-energy of compassion. So it may have to start with curiosity or Start with calmness through breath or meditation. But for me, compassion is probably the, 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 the biggest voice that comes through first for me. Because I've, I believe I've practiced compassion towards myself even before I was realizing that I was doing IFS. I really, I think I learned this in the 12-step program was, you know, I had, I've, I've had the same sponsor for most of my sobriety and I could go to her with any problem or anything that I've done. And her first response would be, I understand how you might have gotten there and might, that might have happened. And can we let's work on forgiving yourself right now. Let's say a prayer. Let's ask, ask for forgiveness. And that practice of just consistently having somebody to be that connection for me and to, in many ways, be the self-energy for me until I could acquire enough of my own, she continued to help me just be compassionate towards the parts, even though I didn't even know that was what was going on. And nor did mm -hmm. she actually. She was just helping me practice compassion. Mm -hmm. Now, Gabby, one of the most interesting uh, sections of, of the book, Happy Days, and I want to make sure we talk about it, is a chapter you write called Hiding Behind the Body. And this is where uh, you're very vulnerable about your own journey with some pretty severe physical challenges. You write about how uh, your TMJ was so bad uh, that it even caused broken teeth for you during a period of your life and very severe gastritis. And help me understand how you saw these physical challenges 
and your journey through trauma to being more self-led? In my journey through trauma recovery, I became very aware that a lot of the physical issues that I'd had for decades were psychosomatic conditions. They were trauma responses. They were stress responses. So we often can witness people very stuck in the same perpetual gastro issues or chronic pain, in my case with the TMJ, or insomnia or back pain, neck pain, very common, headaches, migraines, even skin issues, which led me to explore more and become a student of the work of Dr. John Sarno. And Sarno wrote the book Healing Back Pain, which is a huge huge bestseller throughout the world is it helps people recognize that back pain and neck pain are a psychosomatic condition. Uh, and then I became obsessed with one of his books called The Mind-Body Prescription. And that book really helped me witness my physical issues through the lens of awareness and understanding that these chronic physical conditions were absolutely happening to me. You know, I had I had to take at points in time, you know, acid blockers to put out the fire. I didn't avoid doctors, but I was only going to fully heal when I actually healed the root cause condition, which was the hypervigilance, the constant fear, the fear, the incessant anxiety as a result of living with PTSD. And so as a result of putting my through a very, myself through a very steadfast journey of EMDR and IFS and internal family systems and, e, and EFT and, and somatic experiencing and devotionally showing up for my health and my recovery, I've gotten my nervous system back to a very calm and centered place. I have absolutely no more gastrointestinal issues and have not for years. I have very little little physical pain only gets activated when I'm exercising too much. I sleep through the night perfectly. And you know what? I still have some jaw stuff. There's still a first responder. I most recently got like um, a special retainer to actually, this is the first hour of the day that I will only, the hour today that I won't be wearing it, that helps me reset my my jaw. And the thing that, you know, that I would say about that is that that assistance is is there, but it's not the solution. The assistance is actually helping me witness my body's, my body still responding to unresolved, impermissible rage, fear, and anger. And so there's still the final frontier, even when we start to get very healed. And so in the midst of this, I start to notice every time I see my jaw not connected in alignment with that retainer, I ask myself, what do you need to feel right now? So actually a really beautiful, it's a really amazing tool. It's like almost like you're getting a little notification every time you're in a triggered place. And usually it's when I'm, you know, writing or typing or texting or in 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 something where I'm very like, I gotta get it done kind of mode. And so the work of Dr. Sarno is that the is really expressed in that the physical symptoms that we have are the psychosomatic response to impermissible rage. And so as I started to address those feelings of rage and fear and anxiety and terror, I began to let my body relax. Okay. So let's just talk about it in present tense. When you uh, feel your jaw tighten up and I, you know, I have a tight jaw. I don't, I, it's not gone to the level maybe of intense TMJ where I'm wearing anything, but I, I have, I know there's a lot of tension in there and you ask yourself, what's the impermissible feeling? And, you know, it's something who knows what, what it might be. Then what Gabby? Okay. So there's two things that all happen right now with the with this amazing little device that I have now. It's really just almost like a little gentle reminder. Okay, there's a physical thing happening that's reminding me that an emotional thing is occurring. And that's that's a pretty neat way to kind of meet the the inner workings of of how you are because you're you're the TMJ this is important. The TMJ is actually a protector part too. The physical the gastrointestinal issues were a protector part too. From a Sarno perspective, John Sarno perspective. So just can you explain that for people who are yeah, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not following you, Gabby. That's what I, I don't care that's, what you're talking that's, about. Yeah, okay. That's where I'm going. So so from a Dr. Sarno perspective, we 
these we would use these physical issues like a gastro issue or a TMJ or a back pain as a way of taking our mind, our, our brain away from the focus of the trauma or the impermissible rage or whatever it is that we're not ready to face, and then creating pain to have a focus, to, to distract us from the inner feelings. And then it's it's also physiological. So he would say how we would start directing so much attention and blood flow to those, you know, and, and actually constriction to those areas, the jaw, the stomach, the back, that blood flow would not flow there. And therefore, it would consistently stay, you know, in that in that kind of truncated state of 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 inflammation and pain. The second that we start to to repudiate that pain and notice, okay, oh, I notice my jaw is clenched. Oh, that's not my jaw. That's my feelings I need to face. That's something I should become curious about. That's something I can bring to my therapy today. Very quickly, you can actually feel the pain subside because you're realizing, you're, you're, you're telling your brain, no, that is not my physical pain. That is an emotional disturbance. Now, I want to go on the record, and I know that Sarno did too. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say, stop taking your medication or don't go to your doctor. He may be a little bit more bold than I would be even. He may even say, Gabby, why are you even doing that 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 retainer? Truly, he probably would have said. But for me, I'm using it as a device for getting for, – well, there's a lot of reasons. But, but, but I would never suggest somebody get off their medication or any of that. But I would, I would suggest that they become the witness of the pain when it's there become curious about it, just like in IFS, witness the part, become curious about the part, and in that place of curiosity, you're extending self-energy to it, and then the part can start to relax. So this is how a physical issue is just another protector part. The same way we, when I'm trying to control everything, I'm trying to protect myself from feeling impermissible feelings, is the same way my stomach, when clenched, would be another way of protecting myself from feeling impermissible feelings. Okay. So, you know, when it comes to uh, especially back pain, tension and jaw tension, uh, in my own life, I'm with you, Gabby, in terms of really inquiring within and maybe doing some gentle release. I notice sometimes when I talk to people, let's just take back pain and I say something gentle, even like, you know, have you explored the notion that yeah, there yeah, could be, out. yeah, they're just like, you freak know, no way, bam, like, you know, yeah. I can't believe, yeah. I can't believe you're bringing this up, you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm not going to talk to you again. And that's going to be extreme. For- but how do you, how, I'm curious about that because it's one thing for us just to explore it in our own lives, but how yeah. do you have these conversations with you, people you, without getting that reaction? You don't, you, you just like with IFS, if you don't have buy-in, you can't talk to the parts. So if someone's unwilling or has zero desire to have any awareness about what the psychosomatic feelings could be behind their body, you can't be suggestive. Maybe there's a uh, like a sort of behind the scenes way to get into it. Like instead of associating it with the back pain, right? Let's say it's a loved one, like like my husband has back pain. And and he is one of those people that's like, you know, he actually has some buy-in, right? We've, we, we, we do IFS together. But when he's stuck in his back pain for many, many years, he'd be like, screw you. I don't want to talk about what's happening to me emotionally. So now instead of, I've gotten into the habit of instead of saying, oh, well, let's sit down and talk to the part of you. And like, he'd be like, screw you. I'll just be like, is there anything that's on your mind that you want to get out? Would you love to talk to me about anything that might be just like holding you back at this time? And then he'll start just talking. You're like, oh, this happened with the contractor and then I have to do this. And they'll just, I'll give, I'll hold the space for him to release what's inside. As he starts to just be held in that conversation, not a conversation about how his back pain is the problem, isn't the problem and his, his issues, but just letting him open up, the back pain can start to subside. And so... Sometimes we have to be the self-energy for the other because I can't – he doesn't have the buy-in. So he may not be able to say, okay, I'm willing to do the work and start to connect to that compassionate part of me and get curious about this pain. He may – most people can't do that out of the gate. 
So as the friend or the practitioner or the person like you or myself who have been around a lot of this work for many, many years, we could just get curious and become the self-energy in the room. Hey, well, what's going on for you lately? Have you been? And, you know, I, I, I have a lot of compassion. I really, really understand. Like, this is, things are really busy for you. And that's like a lot. Oh, and the nanny just quit. Yeah, that's a lot. I, I know. I get it. I have a lot of compassion for you. Even in that place, Tammy, of just extending that curiosity and that calm energy and that compassion, you're co-regulating with the person. They start to pick up your self-energy and their system starts to, to relax. And in that relaxed place, their physical pain can begin to subside. Now, we can't be that for somebody all the time, but in the moment we can, in that moment, especially if it's someone that you live with and you see them all the time. But you don't want to be... There, you don't want them to be reliant on your energy, but just do remember the power of your energy. And that if you bring self with you, not only are you staying steady for you, but you're also creating steadiness for the other person. Mm -hmm. It's very helpful. Now, uh, two final things, Gabby. One is, you know, when I first saw the title Happy Days, and then I saw, oh, we're going to be journeying through trauma, I thought, what? Like I had this uh, disconnect between the title and the journey that we take through these very difficult topics. And you explain the title in the book, and I wonder if you can share that with our listeners and also how you make sense of this journey to happy days through such difficult material. It's a very autobiographical title, and it's something I had to really stick to. Once again, you know, often a publisher doesn't want what you want. And I stuck to it because I, I actually channeled it. It was in it was in just a, a, a meditative state where I was trying to allow myself to open up to what this title would be, and then I heard it's your story, it's <clears throat> it's about your story, and I saw my whole family raising their glass in this visual meditation, and so what that represents to me is as a child, when around the table instead of our family saying cheers, we would all say happy days, and it was a bit eerie at the time, and it still is to me, because we weren't very happy, or I know I was not very happy. And in fact, I was terrified. And so this book is my journey to happy days. It's to really be able to raise my glass of kombucha or water today on my 17-year anniversary and say, happy days. I am genuinely living happy days. I also loved the title too, Tammy, because it was something hopeful. It wasn't like, you know, f fear. You know, it was, it was a hopeful title because this is a book about telling the story of what it means to live through trauma and recover and heal and live to say, I can be in happy days. And so, yeah, it's it, it can be it can be confusing at first, and I was mm -hmm. excited to be. And I ended up putting that story at the very beginning to sort of open up with it. It was actually originally at the end, but there was some compromises with my publishers. <laughs> well, let's take a, a moment here. Happy days, Gabby. Happy days, my friend. Happy, Happy days. Happy days. So beautiful. Thank you. Now, the last thing I want to talk to you about. Uh, has to do with something you said in the very beginning when I was asking you about being vulnerable. And you said, well, in the book, I talk about recovery from addiction. I talk about the journey through trauma. And I also talk about my devotional spiritual nature. And what came up for me is so interesting that to talk about one's devotional spiritual nature requires a certain amount of courage and bravery, and in and of itself is a way of making ourselves vulnerable. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. I believe that my commitment to spirit, spirit of my own understanding, and my commitment to freedom inner freedom, is what has been the greatest source of guidance throughout my entire recovery journey over the last 17 years, even before that. Because that spiritual connection, I believe in spirit guides, I believe in a God of my own understanding. And that connection is what led me to the books, to the teachers, to the therapist, to the the IFS book when I was ready to understand more to the somatic experiencing practitioners to the EMDR therapist that saved my life you know to just one step at a time to the people to and it also is what gave me the courage to stay open and vulnerable and willing to heal what I've come to get closer to is that spiritual connection through my journey 
Because what I'm realizing now more than ever is that that spiritual connection of self has always been inside of me. It's been with me the whole time. And the more well I become and the more connected I become, the more I know God and with conviction, with full-bodied conviction. So speaking fearlessly about my spiritual experience was how I first started my career. It's what my first eight books are about until I began to open up to what the psychology and, and physiology and all of the other experiences that we're having in our human experience merged with that spiritual foundation. And I believe that they're interchangeable. And I also believe that the therapies that I was guided to are very spiritual in nature, very, that they're channeled material, in my opinion. And I can say that because I'm not a therapist, but they're, they are very spiritual in nature. And so without that faith, I wouldn't be here right now. You, you write, Gabby, that we each have a spiritual guidance system and that we can develop a relationship with our spiritual guidance system by making a decision to let go and be guided. And then you continue, surrender requires acceptance of the past, presence in the moment, and faith in the future. And I wanted to end with you commenting on this notion of faith in the future. I think this is a time when a lot of people have concern about our collective future, our individual future. They don't have faith in the future. What gives you faith in the future? Well, on October 2nd of 2005, exactly 17 years ago, around this exact time, I was sitting on the floor of my studio apartment in New York City, and I was staring at this stack of self-help books next to my bed, and Wayne Dyer and Marianne Williamson and Deepak and A Course in Miracles, and I was looking at all these spiritual books. And I was looking at that, and I had no idea of how I could get there, but I had hope, and I had enough presence in that moment, hungover and on the floor, to ask for a prayer to ask for a miracle. And I said, God, universe, who's ever out there, I need a miracle. And I heard an audible voice say to me, get sober and you will live a life beyond your wildest dreams. And so that voice is what gave me that faith that day. And so anyone that's listening, we have these moments where we're hitting a bottom in whatever form. Many people are hitting bottom right now, like as you mentioned, as a result of just feeling hopeless and feeling helpless. And those moments where we hit bottom, Rumi has this beautiful quote, the wound is the place where the light enters you. And when we have those moments in life where we crack open to what is not working, where when we give up, when we surrender to it completely through that desire to just know more, even slightly, then we are given the next right action and the inner guidance to take the steps forward. So my suggestion to everybody watching and listening is that wherever you are in your own personal experience right now, whether it's a big bottom or a low bottom or a high bottom, whatever it might be, just become willing to see it differently and humbly get into any form of prayer that is your own, whether it's I need a miracle, or there has to be a better way, or I welcome creative possibilities. And as we start to, even temporarily, once a day, just suspend our disbelief and get into that open heart and that open mind, our inner guidance system can get to work. And we can start to lean into a faith far beyond our logic and our mind. And in that place of faith, then we can be given everything we need to start to let what is necessary unfold. And we are living in quite scary, uncertain times. It's, it's, it's never been like this before, and I know you could say the same. We've seen, we've seen difficult things. We've never seen this before. And that faith is required of us now in whatever form it comes. So my prayer is that this conversation opens people up to the possibility that there is an inner guidance system beyond your physical site that's within you and around you and guiding you and protecting you, and that we all have access to it if we're willing to open up to it. Thanks, Gabby, and thanks everybody for being with us here for this conversation. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video, 
and participate in after-the-show Q&A conversations with featured presenters and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds True, waking up the world.